Welcome to the Dermatology Interest Group Association podcast, or DIGA podcast, where we talk about everything from how to become a stellar dermatology applicant to interesting topics in dermatology. From research advice to interviewing tips, you will be prepared to follow the path to become a world-class dermatologist. Today, I talk with Drs. Chris Liu and Arash Mastagimi of the Topical Pod, or in their words, the OG Dermatology Podcast. We talk through a variety of topics, including action films, baked goods, and the Topical Pod, the Harvard Combined Dermatology Residency Program, med derm programs, cosmetic dermatology, and more. Dr. Liu and Dr. Mastagimi have a gift for casual yet high-yield dermatology podcasts, and I know you'll pick up several nuggets from this episode. And today, I'm your host, Johnny Hatch. See you on the skin side. Well, Drs. Lou and Mastagimi, we're super excited to have you on the show. We were talking before how you are pretty much the OG of dermatology <laughs> podcasts, especially in this kind of medical student space. So we're super excited. I don't, I don't want you. you to qualify that at all. We are just the OG of podcasts, <laughs> is how I would put it. Yeah. Yeah, not even in dermatology. Yeah. Just podcast. <laughs> We're so but, uh, happy to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're excited because we've been missing out on the topical pod. I haven't heard an episode for a while. So we're excited to have you here and then to hear a little bit about the future of topical. That's right. Um, but before we dive in, can you guys tell us a little bit about where you did your training, where you are now, and what are your professional interests? Chris, go ahead. I go? Okay. So um, I did my um, dermatology training at the Harvard Combined Dermatology Program. And actually, that's where I met Arash um, on my, actually, maybe it was the prelim interview, but for one of the residency it was a interviews. Prelim interview. Um, yeah. That's how I met Arash. And so we go way back. And after finishing residency, I practiced as faculty at the Brigham, at Brigham and Women's for four years. And I actually just relocated to San Francisco this past year. Um, in terms of my professional interests, oh, and now I am at Kaiser Permanente. And for um, our listeners who don't know it, this is a huge um, managed care healthcare network. And um, I'm practicing in the San Francisco office in a group of really amazing dermatologists who are really experienced, many of whom have been there for decades. So I'm learning a lot from them. Um, and the scope of my practice really encompasses like the whole range of medical dermatology, surgical dermatology, and cosmetic dermatology. So I looked up the location of your office because I was like, where is this? That's kind of creepy, right? But uh, you are like on the bay, right? Oh, it has. So we're on the top floor of this beautiful building. And so we're on the bay. We have like amazing views of the city and the water. And so especially our procedural rooms have this just panorama. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. So patients can feel really calm when they're about to get their surgery or get their filler. So yes, it's awesome. I work in that office and then um, another office sort of more in the middle of the city. Oh, well, sorry for being the, the stalker. But... It's only creepy, Johnny. If you, if you don't use Street View, it's not creepy. If oh. you just look at the address, it's fine. If you use Street yeah. View, it's a little bit creepy. Yeah, yeah just just uh, yeah, just the top down, you know, satellite. But it wasn't even satellite imagery. It was just, you know... You know, the little just the uh, graphics. Uh, yeah, yeah, just the graphics. Uh, but what about you, Mas- Dr. Masagimi? What where are you? So I am at Brigham and Women's Hospital where we continue to mourn Chris's uh, departure uh, late late last year. Um I have 
some shared interest with Chris with regards to sort of medical dermatology, but I don't have the the breadth of what she does. So I I don't do the cosmetics. I, I don't I do very little surgical stuff. A few excisions here and there, but my focus is really on medical dermatology. Is taking care of people who have complex medical dermatologic disorders or people who have complex just medical histories who happen to have something dermatologic that makes it a little bit more challenging to take care of them. Uh, and I also spend about half of my clinical time doing inpatient dermatology. So I spend a lot of time in the hospital uh, working with a lot of sick patients, particularly mostly our hospital has a lot of cancer patients. Uh, we're the inpatient arm of the Dana-Farber. So that's uh, a lot of bone marrow transplant and cancer patients is, is probably our unofficial focus. We also uh, have a burn unit, so we have a lot of uh, severe drug reactions and things along those lines. Uh, that's my clinical work. I spend about half my time doing uh, uh, doing research, so a little, a little research and, and uh, administrative work as well. Uh, and within that research, uh, increasingly, my focus has been on alopecia areata for um, for reasons we described in our podcast before, mainly that my, my daughter developed alopecia areata about five or six years ago, alopecia universalis, and it, it created interest in the disease for me. And uh, it's uh, really been wonderful to see that space grow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was I was on your website, your, uh, the Moskimi Lab website, and it's cool to see <laughs> the wide range. There's a wide range of interests. Um, Dr. Liu, I saw on your profile, it talks about how you're an avid baker. You love to listen to audiobooks. Dr. Mastagimi has zero hobbies. <laughs> so, I was curious. Well, first, I want to hear, you know, Dr. Liu, what do you have to say about that? What's your favorite thing to bake? Uh, but then I want to hear, like, does Ma Dr. Mastagimi, like, what do you do outside of uh, outside of your research? <laughs> I'm laughing so much because that really encapsulates a rash. Zero hobbies. Outside of zero hobbies. Just focus like a laser. Rashes. Yeah, focus like a laser. <laughs> Um, yeah. I think Arash, you must be making missing my baking a lot because I used to bring a lot of. Cheese. You think I would lose weight? You think <laughs> after after so many years, and then you? I think what I did was I stress ate in response to you leaving, which over oh. overtook the uh, the calories you used to bring me. <laughs> no, it's it's really hard to put into words how much I miss you and miss the Brigham, but. Um, the desserts, I'm actually, I guess right now I'm baking a lot of niangao. Niangao is, um, Chinese year, like a sticky rice cake or year cake because Chinese New Year is coming up. And so, uh, uh, it means like every year going up. So that's like sort of the homonym for the sticky rice cake. It's really delicious. Um, but yeah, like I think our Rosh's main hobby previously involved, um, our podcast and eating desserts that I brought to the office. <laughs> So, so Johnny, Chris is a is a perfectionist when it comes to just about everything in her life, but particularly when it comes to food. Okay, so she would bring me like a batch of cookies that often that she was practicing, like you're describing now, mm -hmm. Chris. You're practicing making these, and I'd always have to pretend that there was some subtle imperfection to it. She's like, "I oh, just take, just take them. I can't, I can't." I'm like, you just take the whole thing. I can't, I can't serve these. Like, it's not, there's no way they, like, they didn't come out right. So that's my, that's, I've been manipulating her for the last uh, decade uh, in order, in order to, to get this. But um, no, I think uh, hobbies is a good question. So I spent a lot of time with my kids. My kids are, are older now. So I, I have spent a lot of time discussing YouTube families, YouTube stars. I have a lot, a lot uh, going on there. I watch a lot of Disney. Yep. I've been trying to get my kids to fall into the Chris Liu line of 
action movies. Okay. Oh, so nice. I watched the classic movie Air Force One with Harrison Ford just a couple so days good. ago, which my younger daughter left because there was too much guns in the middle of it and a piece of me <laughs> just died. A piece of me died because I was like, oh, not, not enough gun, <laughs> not enough gun in that, in that movie. Um, and I actually am a really big fan of, uh, of uh, basketball, particularly NBA basketball. Uh, and I actually have just a real interest in finances. And I know you, you, you found some, some old articles of mine, but I have interest in personal finance and, and industry and how basically we pay for and disseminate the ideas and creations of this world in a, in a fair and equitable manner. So I'm really always interested in sort of that last mile that extends beyond academics to how people get what they need in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Through oh, NFTs cool. and crypto. That's what, <laughs> that's where Arash was. Pure NFTs. <laughs> I'm going to sell an NFT of this, uh, of this podcast right yeah. after this. That's <laughs> a brilliant idea. Okay. <laughs> well, my kid's only, he's only three. So we watched Lilo and Stitch and, he was crying the whole time because the aliens were taking away the daughter from her family. So Aww. not quite to Air Force One status yet, but we'll get there. <laughs> That'll be uh, the next movie we watch. You need to desensitize them gradually. And then by the end, they don't care anymore. They, <laughs> yeah. just, they just see it. Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, we want to hear about the topical pod. This being one of Dr. Mastagimi's only hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about what was the impetus behind creating the Topical Podcast? What's it about? Where Where is it now? Well, we started the podcast. The podcast originated really as a out of a bunch of conversations that Chris and I had. So Chris and I uh, have known each other for years. We've hung out and we have discussed often questions that students ask us about either about careers, about applications, about all this sort of stuff. And we realized that when we were talking to each other and also when we were talking directly to students, that there was a large number of students who just didn't have access to information mm-hmm. that they needed, um, whether they came from smaller programs or programs that didn't have the level of mentorship that we could provide or things along those lines. And our idea was, hey, maybe if we have these conversations and record them, people may find them interesting or listen to them. But to be honest, Johnny, it's because we enjoyed hanging out and we just yeah. need an excuse to hang out. And it was really fun to do that. So we've done a, two or three, three seasons. That's technically three seasons. Yeah, three seasons. Three seasons, Chris, where the first season was really focused on on applications, right? Mm-hmm. It was really about walking people through the application process. It was really for us, it was like, how do you learn to do a podcast also, which was, which was really <laughs> fun. We came, we came a long way. Came a long way, yeah. And then the second season was really more about... Um, beginning to explore different aspects of not just the application process, but careers in, in dermatology. And we extended that in the third season where we explored kind of different people's experiences and lives and careers and things along those lines. So Chris left about three to four months ago to go to San Francisco. Fortunately, we have gotten used to doing things digitally. Sadly, I wasn't hanging out with you in person very much for a while before you left uh, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, but our hope is that now that, that, that she's settled, we're going to mm-hmm. uh, come back and do probably about a monthly podcast uh, to maintain our OG status and make sure we're not, <laughs> we're not forgotten uh, and to maintain maintain our, our, our credibility. But really, it just came... Honestly, mostly out of just two two people having fun and hoping people would enjoy their their conversations, and it's been neat to see how much it's uh, it's grown from there. Yeah, yeah, I will say that it's been looking back on the last three seasons, it's really been one of the one of the 
one of the things that I really did for like me, for us, you know, it brought so much joy into my life. There's so many things as part of one's career where it probably fills many buckets and it did for us. But I think the biggest bucket it filled for me was this personal enjoyment, getting to hang out with Arash, learning. Like we're always learning something new. I, I look back on our first few episodes, it sounded like we recorded like in a garage, like around like a like a computer from the 1980s. I mean, it was awful. And and then there the were- The analog era of was, our, uh, of our like podcast. Yeah. Like, ah. yeah. And then it got better and better. But, you know, even looking at us now with the equipment that we have and the ability to record things virtually, and inviting guests from all over the country. Um, it's We've really come such a long way. So it's been really fun to to do that. And like, I love hearing that we've inspired other people to start, po- start podcasts and hopefully like pave the way as OG podcasters. Well, that analog quality adds to the OG-ness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, but... Like the, right. Yeah, the real gritty authenticity. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I was listening to some of those first episodes in preparation for this. Um, <laughs> And, and there, you know, let's, I don't want to say low quality audio, but let's just say, you know, if there is low quality audio, if that's what we're calling it, it was high quality content. Oh, that's kind of you. It's really fun to go back. Like now, when I first listened to the podcast, I was probably a first or second year medical student. Now that I'm a third year student thinking about audition rotations, applying all this stuff, it's, it's a lot more relevant to go back and listen mm-hmm. again. And I realized that a lot of what we're trying to do on the Diga podcast um, will be a, a second rerun of what you've done on the topical podcast. And uh, we hope it adds to the conversation mm-hmm. that, that you all have started. And um, it's, it's really a great, a great podcast. But um, so you have three seasons. What's, can you give us a little trailer, a little teaser of episode uh, season four? So season four, we're going to, uh, Chris is going to tell us all about her job and her new life. That's how it's going to start. But we have some folks that we uh, are, are are going to bring. We're going to talk about AI. We're going to talk about the future. We're going to talk about, um, I really want to focus more on private practice mm-hmm. and different models outside of academics, which I think are really important. And really thinking about how, um, I think the challenge when you look back when you're maybe in your in your position, Johnny, or people who are in the same position as you in their careers, like you're you have to be somewhat laser focused on making it in dermatology, right. getting into dermatology to make it there. What you don't realize on the way out of it is like that you have to make a life out of that, mm-hmm. right? It's the difference between like you know you're uh, in a. This is my first. Uh, um, couples analogy right of this podcast is my favorite thing favorite thing to talk about it's the difference between dating somebody and then having a life with them right like it's a it's a really different ideas Mm -hmm. and i think that if we spend we spend a lot of time focusing on how to prepare yourself and and psychologically get in the right mind space so you can uh have the best chance of becoming a dermatologist what we really need to explore now is i think how do you uh, maintain your life, think about how you can impact yourself and your community and your society in the way that you want, and really do it in a sustainable manner that right. keeps you happy, keeps you satisfied, keeps you from burning out. And um, part of what's worked for for me is having a variety of activities mm-hmm. that I that I do, uh, each of which, which is enriching in a different way. And I think if we can help people get the mindset that you have some agency in that, that you have some choices. The hard part is that for 
the first decade of your medical training, you have no choices. Like, what are you going to be like? Hey, you know, I'm tired. I don't think I'm going to come to clinic the rest of the week. Like, you're going to do that? What are you going to take? You know, I should take an extra vacation. Who's going to be like? You're just going to leave internship for three days? It's a, it's a farce when it comes to residents because they're not autonomous beings yet, right? Mm-hmm. We're not fully autonomous. We have to work. We have obligations. We have things like that. But you have to really begin to build that in and begin to, to do that. So that's our focus on, uh, on what I think we're going to try to impart in this this season and beyond. Yeah, I think so many of the guests we've had on the show um, have been like academic all stars um, and obviously within like closer circles of our network. And I will say for myself, this is obviously the very first time I've had a different job, right? Because I, I, I trained, I grew up in the same place and I practiced there. And it's been just this incredibly eye opening experience to see how much of it is different, but how much of it is the same. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, you know, the day to day is really, it's just so fascinating not just from the practice of dermatology, but the but how how the practice is set up, the types of patients that we see, what is our what is expected of us, what is like the balance of our lives now that the practice is different, um, wellness, you know, how to prevent burnout. Um, and then so so yeah, it's just been this whole new experience for me and that hopefully we can bring that to our audience because like Arash said, as medical students and as residents, the only exposure we get is like our program, right? So in some ways, it's very limited, the the types of models and the mentors we have. And so it would be really interesting to see what that's like. I will say as an aside that, you know, Arash is like this, like, um, inpatient expert all stars, I'm still texting him all the time as someone who hasn't taken call in four years. <laughs> I'm like, Arash, I'm in the hospital. <laughs> What's that? No, I'm just kidding. But it, it has been really great to brush off and dust off some of those things that um, I haven't had a lot of exposure to. So yeah, so we hope to bring even more breath to our audience in season four. Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have a business background. I got a business degree. And um, sometimes that can, um, you know, depending on where you are in medicine, people hear that and, and can take it as like, oh, you really care about the business side of medicine. You want to be part of the machine or, or whatever the, the complaint is. But it's cool to hear that this is part of your future to talk about those things, because regardless of where you end up practicing, you want to understand mm-hmm. the nuance of, of, how, of how it runs so that, you know, if you are a cog in a machine, you understand your role and you can make it more efficient for the patients and, and better for you. Um, and then also, like you're saying, do it in a sustainable way that's, that's ethical and, and try and be a force for good in, in this space, both in dermatology, but then also in the, the business of dermatology mm-hmm. because it is that um, currently in the, in in our in our world. So. I, I hope Johnny that as we mature as a as a field we become more open to this idea. I think if you look at any time there's an economic overset with medicine, not just dermatology. Dermatology is a small part of that, but whether it's from the pharmaceutical side, whether it's from the patient care side, reimbursement side, all those types of things. The historical view for physicians was that we were above the fray, like we didn't need to be involved with this or we didn't need to 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 do it. And I think one of the parts of that really came to, to bear was with um, electronic health records, which we basically ignored until we were saddled with this monstrosity that where literally people want to quit their jobs and and leave because of this thing that was thrust upon us. So anytime I think that there's a movement, and we're doing the same thing right now in dermatology with direct-to-consumer type type stuff, we're doing you know anything that's sort of a little bit different practice model or design. Telemedicine, we we ignored, 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 and said it was impossible that we couldn't do it until they're like, 
your clinic is closed. You cannot make money. And all of us were like, this is perfect. This works great. We love this. Come, we're going to do, we do it's exactly the same. It's perfect. So that was thrust upon us. But honestly, we tried to ignore it and, and, and delay it for as long as we possibly could as a field. So my sense is that there is a corrupting, potentially corrupting influence of money anywhere you go. And you have to be very, very careful because we know that for any of us, even if we're not aware of it, the introduction of money or the presence of, of incentives can really uh, alter our behavior, certainly at the individual level and certainly at a, at a group and population level. But if we choose not to uh, deal with these and to address these and to be part of the changes that are invariably coming into our field, we are the only people that have a responsibility directly with the patient. Everybody else has like a fiduciary responsibility to their to their company or to their shareholders or to run the hospital organization properly or to make sure whatever that they sell as many MRI machines or what have you. And unless a physician voice is part of that, it's really easy for us to as a as a field, not a field just in dermatology, but a field of medicine to just consistently creep towards places where it just doesn't make economic sense. So I would encourage us to be more aggressive with our engagement and to embrace people with the background interests you've described uh, instead of chasing all those people away. Otherwise, then you're only left with business people making decisions and they're going to use a different calculus. Their their definition of success is super different than, mm-hmm. than ours. Yeah. And, and it sounds like one thing that I love about it is is we are laser focused, right, on medicine, and we should be. We need to learn the trade well and and have that knowledge, right? But the thing that your podcast will bring and does bring is just kind of that that little piece on a semi regular basis t- to remind us of okay, we need to keep these things in the background of our mind and just those nuggets. So that's cool. I'm excited for uh, season four. Um, Thank you, us too. <laughs> so a little bit more about the topical pod that I, I'm excited to hear about. And you, you guys give an interview with the Cosmetic Surgery Forum and Dr. Lou, they ask you what your favorite episode is. <laughs> Dr. Lou says, your favorite is Mansplaining with Arash. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about that episode and why is it your favorite? You know, that is one of our OG episodes, right? Um, it is. It's it is, old. yeah. It's old. <laughs> you know, and I think we playfully called it mansplaining. I mean, it has none of the pejorative implications of the word, or maybe it does, Arash. I don't know. I'll have to go back and listen. <laughs> if it's aged well or not. Maybe, we have to, maybe we'll delete it. Maybe nobody can listen to it anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely a possibility because if I recall correctly, that was the episode where you were talking about how to dress on the interview trail, right? And so you were giving advice about like the typical female dress code like avoiding heels when visiting the Northeast in the winters. You don't have to trudge through the snow between campuses and four-inch heels. Chris makes it sound like I, it was like a soliloquy for like an hour and a half. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't quite like that. We're going to have to go back to listen to it to really see who's right. No, it was very entertaining. And I do think it's educational in the sense that I think um, we made it fun on purpose because I think a lot of times there's a lot of, um, there's like a lot of mythologizing, a lot of like, um, overthinking, right? Like I, I think by default, many of us are overthinkers about the process and um, we can kind of run in circles about what's the right thing, what's the best thing to do. And so I think we hope to simplify some of that messaging around just like how to show up. And now it's really different. We probably, I don't know if we touched upon this, like how to dress for Zoom interviews and stuff. I think we did. We did, we did in a later, in a later episode. Yeah. I think, I think the bottom line is Johnny that 
when you're in the middle of this application process, it feels like that's your whole world. Mm-hmm. And literally nobody else cares nearly about, as much, <laughs> about, about as much as you do. Right. So it's like when we do interviews, it's like another, like, it's like it's another day of life. Like it's just, you go in and you do the interviews. It's a little bit different, right? But you've done them many years in a row and you do it. And, but people get so fixated on this exactly. Like, can I have, should I have a beard? That was one of the questions. Yeah. Should I, should I have a, you know, is it unprofessional to wear a certain type of shoe or how long should my dress be or how low cut and, you know, whatever it was, these are the, what color. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, we, we explored some of those issues in that. Uh, I think Chris really liked the name. I think that's really what Chris liked. I, just, that I loved the thing. name because <laughs> just loved the idea of you mansplaining many things. <laughs> well, my favorite part was, I think Dr. Moxigini tells a story of, of somebody on the trail that spills a plate of spaghetti all over his suit. That he's yeah, no, it was my it was my my friend's suit. Yeah, that was a classic. I, I I always think about that every time I see. We, so we don't see this we don't see this anymore. But historically, during this time of year, you always walk around the hospital and you see groups of people in suits who are interviewing. Right. So we haven't seen that the last couple of years. It's, it's been virtual. But every time I see like these group of like dark suited you know people walking around, that's who I uh, that's who I always <laughs> think about. So for the for the people who don't remember the story, this is the story. All right, this my friend was getting married. Okay, so my friend was getting married and was interviewing for internal medicine. He had an interview on like let's say Tuesday, an interview Thursday, then on Saturday he was getting married because he was a medical student and had no money, like all medical students. He had one suit. Okay, just one suit. So. For the wedding and the interviews, it's just all the same, all the same thing. On Tuesday, when they're getting, they do the interviews, they're getting lunch, and the dude has like some guy has like a a plate filled with like spaghetti and sauce and like some Italian thing, right? <laughs> and trips and literally like, like comically almost like just throws it on the suit. Right? <laughs> It had the ability not only to mess up his interview, but his wedding. I mean, it was like, what What more? How much more consequence could there be? I should reach out to him. I don't remember actually what happened. I know he, he got married. I don't remember what happened at the interview the next day or two days later. But anyway, it was just an, an amazing moment. Yeah, I want to hear the follow-up. I want to hear that. We'll add it on as a segment it, at the end. And- it's made me paranoid to this day, Johnny. When I go to different places, like you go for like a day, right? To somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And you're like, you don't need to bring like two pairs of pants or two shirts. Like you're just going literally like, you know, you're going, you're flying there the next day you're doing it. You're leaving right after. I'm always paranoid to this day. Like what, what happens, you know, if, if uh, some travesty occurs at some point. Uh, all right. Well, that, well, that's mansplaining with Arash. So thank you. <laughs> I, it was fun to, fun to relive that a little bit. Um, but Dr. Mastagini, in that same interview, you say that your favorite episode is how to ace your interviews. and I realized this is a cheap answer because I went back and listened to it and it's, it's a two part interview. It's a it, two part episode. So mm-hmm. you kind of got two for one, but <laughs> why, why are those that's the economic ones? side of me? Just always looking for a good bargain. That's, that, 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 that's what it is. But yeah, tell us, tell us about them. It was, well, what I liked about that, uh, what I really liked about for myself personally, what I enjoyed about that was that Chris and I just went into those cold and it was basically like us interviewing each other, mm-hmm. which was like a fun thing because uh, it it may amaze our listeners, but we do not prepare at all for, for, for our podcast. 
<laughs> or they're like, this is no. exactly what we thought. As We literally we, don't script anything, so we just talk on the fly. Um, I think I, I like that. I think that's part of our... I mean, it's the only thing that we could do. Otherwise, it would be work, and we didn't want to really work. So then we, we're literally in the room. We've decided we want to, we want to do a podcast that's on um, common interview questions, uh-huh. right? So we just Google, like, what are common behavioral questions? <laughs> and we just literally go down the list and ask back and forth, and it was... Chris is a really good interview. I, I was impressed by her. I would I would have uh, taken her in our. I didn't interview her. I interviewed her for her prelim program, which we did take you for, Chris. Right. <laughs> we, so so uh, and I would have done the same for the uh, for the actual dermatology <laughs> program. Um, but it was fun to learn. It was it was fun to hear the actual stories. It was like a, it was almost like a little bit of a challenge that we're going mm-hmm. back and forth. That part was fun. Um, and the the third part was actually the that was. It was fun, I think, to hear about how Chris and I each prepared for our interviews, mm-hmm. which was really true to our personalities. So, I, I literally did nothing. I just showed up and like <laughs> did, did did what I need. I just, just spoke to people. Whereas Chris meticulously, this is my favorite part. Chris <laughs> meticulously practiced, right, mm-hmm. to the extent where she knew her answers so well that then she had to practice additionally to unlearn some of the answers <laughs> so she could be more human in giving giving them. I thought it was spectacular. That's a good behind the scenes because you give the answer and then the other person critiques the answer. Yeah. Dr. Moss, there are multiple times you're like, and and Dr. Lou doesn't sound scripted at all. It sounds natural. (laughs) Behind the scene of... of, Yeah, I mean, I literally had to practice to sound less like a robot. I mean, I I do think it is very true to our personalities, but I think a big part of it was just to alleviate my own anxieties going in to know that I knew all the answers to every possible question. But it was really fun. I feel like it was one of the few times where, I mean, I mean, I certainly never answered any questions on the interview trail, like off the cuff like that. So it was great to to think back on. You could have done it, Chris. You didn't need to practice all that. You could have done it. So, yeah. That's actually one of my favorite episodes too. So yeah, no, it was. It, I in the end, Johnny. In the end, people just want to control as much as they can. So it it becomes it's a process that you have no control over. You right. have little control over. So a lot of people fixate on weird things, whether it's your hair, your clothing, your like, you know, what's the best travel schedule? Like that was historically the thing. Like these are all these little tiny mm-hmm. things that are at the margins. You really focus on those because honestly, the meat of what you really care about, which is like, can I go to a residency program that I like in a place that's like. I, I would enjoy being at that's such an existential question that you have little control over that you, you work at you like how many times do you have to debate whether you send like a um, whatever like a, a thank you note as though this is like the war like when have you ever received a thank you note where you're like you know this this really makes a difference like this, this thank you note it just really this is this is the the clue we were waiting for to make it you know make our decision you know it does not like that but people want to feel like they're in control yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, th- th- I really liked that that episode. It was a good one, but I will say when I started the second episode, my I, I just got this feeling of dread to hear the word. We're going to talk about behavioral interviews. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but they were really good. They were really good examples. And and Dr. Liu, you tell a story in there that people need to go back and listen to because I remember that story so well that I've told it to people about uh-huh. your experience at the VA yeah. and. And I forgot about what it, you know, where that story came from, like what specific episode until I just barely listened to it. I'm like, oh, this is, this is where it came from. Anyway, you need to go listen to it. We're not going to tell it here because I, don't know, I, I think it deserves 
Oh, thank you. The sanctity of that episode. So yeah, it's something that's left an indelible mark on on my life, on my on the way I practice medicine and the way I look at patients. So yeah, I think I think that's the key, right? When you go on the interview trail, as much as you can, obviously be authentically yourself, but then draw upon the things that really mean something to you. Because I think it's easy for the interviewer to get that sense from you, right? That you're talking about something that's truly important, um, and that that focuses on key values, and it's easy to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we kind of joked about practicing, but for me, um, and maybe Dr. Moskini will disagree, but for me, I feel like practicing those behavioral interview questions is important because you need to think about how does this come off? Does it come off as pretentious? Does it come off as mm-hmm. um, self-humiliating? Because you don't want to, you, you guys talk about not, um, there's a question about moral fail or about, tell us about a time you fail and mm-hmm. you say, don't talk about a moral failure. You know, th- there are things you need to practice before going right. into these interviews. So you don't, you don't. Do yeah. I think Arash is a, is, is exceptional and that he is able to talk off the cuff. I mean, you can talk to a brick wall. I mean, I, I honestly, I'm an accessory. <laughs> just a, I'm just a live, a warm body for Arash to talk to on our podcast. <laughs> we could just put up like a, like a, like a cutout of me on a popsicle stick. No, I'm just kidding. But I think Arash, you have this exceptional ability to to speak so eloquently about any subject. I really could just throw anything at you, and I think oh, you can that's... talk about it. Um, and 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 but but I think for the rest of us mere mortals, we do need to practice <laughs> because you're exactly right. Some things that sound a certain way in our heads, right? Then when we actually you know put those words out there, especially if we can practice with an audience, um, they can really give us some critical feedback about like, yeah, yeah, you want to sound like you know, just the right amount of self-deprecating, but not humiliating or have it come across in a bad way. Yeah, no, I think that's very kind of you, Chris. Thank you. I think the, um, what I recommend to people is that if they don't practice, regardless of how they feel about questions, it's hard to predict questions because there's literally infinite of them. You, what you really want to do is have a set of uh, scenarios Mm -hmm. that you're really comfortable with discussing that are, um, you feel emotionally ready to discuss that, uh, particularly when they're more personal, right? So you don't want to necessarily talk about something that's personal to you and necessarily like break down emotionally or things along those lines. So if you if you pick the right scenario, right ideas, have, you know, five to seven of those, um, you know, patient encounters you can talk about, team encounters you can talk about, those can really be applied to many different settings. And you can um, get a lot of mileage there, which may be a little bit more uh, efficient than, than specific questions per se. There are some specific questions like why dermatology, like things that you, that you universally are going to get that you should have a thoughtful response when you, when you go in. But for behavioral questions, it's, it's, it's almost limitless, right? What they can, they can ask you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Dr. Lou, you mentioned Dr. Mostagimi can, can talk to a brick wall. And <laughs> that was a, I know it's meant as a compliment, so, um, but we actually want to shift and talk about a little bit about Dr. Mostagimi, about your career doing med derm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit, so you're board certified in both internal medicine and dermatology, um, and you did a combined program. There's a couple of these throughout the nation, but can you tell us why did you decide med derm? Yeah, so so MedDerm is a yeah combined is a five year program. So instead of doing one year of internship and three years of dermatology, you do five years where it's uh, integrated dermatology and medicine, and usually you do one year of medicine, one year of dermatology, and then the last three years you go back and forth. So uh, I will be honest with you, Johnny. I I'm not sure I did it for the best reasons. I did it because I was really fascinated and interested by medicine. Like I think I'm 
sort of more naturally inclined towards medicine. My, um, I felt like a lot to give up uh, when I was worried about being a little bit too narrow or focused. And one thing that, you know, you discussed my lab website and the breadth of what we do, that's that's just because I, I am always interested by a lot of different things. It's just my personality that I've, I'm fascinated by the world around me and want to learn about it. So in some ways, it was a bit of a deferred decision because I didn't know what exactly I wanted to do. But my mentors and role models, the things that attracted me in medicine were on the inpatient setting. And they were people that had medicine backgrounds, which was much more common back then. So in the 80s, uh, it was common like for people to do a full internship and then do dermatology residency afterwards. So there was a lot more sort of the medicine background. And then that that transitioned um, over time and became less and less. This was these, these new programs were kind of bringing it back in a slightly different way. So my uh, so my interest was just I was wanted to be good at both and wanted to learn both and wanted to take care of complicated patients and that was my that was my motivation in doing it. Um, it worked out incredibly well for me. I'm really happy for having done it. I think it, it it works well for my personality. It really impacted substantially my research actually, which takes a lot of like a general medicine approach towards dermatologic questions, and um, allowed me to access a bunch of different mentors and resources that I wouldn't have had in dermatology. So um, it benefited me from that standpoint. I'm not sure having gone to a program like uh, uh, Harvard or really any program that really is has a strong medical dermatology presence, that it has made me profoundly better at taking care of med derm patients than I would have been otherwise. I have a lot of uh, mentors and other folks in my department who have dermatology training but not medicine training, and I would not say that I'm any better at taking care of patients by any means than any of them. I have a slightly different approach and perspective. So I think for the right person, and this is a person who is truly interested in internal medicine, um, it, it may make a lot of sense. You probably should be a little bit more clinically inclined than I am. I only have see a couple. I only have a couple clinics and and do some inpatient consults. But the more clinic you do, the better it is. Some of my colleagues like uh, Vinod Nambudiri and Stephen Chen, who are both guests on our our podcast, um, they do blocks of medicine as well, um, which is uh, super cool and awesome that they can do that. Um, uh, and they've had a lot of success with that. I did that for a bit, but but no longer do that. Um, but I think if in the right for the right person, it can be a reasonable career choice. For the majority of people, I think they can probably be better suited by going to a strong uh, med derm pro, uh, dermatology program that has a medicine component. And if you go through that and you're still really interested in med derm and don't have the, um, don't feel that you're good enough at it, these also fellowship programs that you can attend afterwards. So, okay, so I've I talked to some people about this, and they were they pretty much said that they were interested in like complex med derm right and they were advised that not to go to a combined five-year med derm program because those are really for people who want to go into academia whereas this person um just wanted to to do private practice but have a, a clinical focus on complex med derm um do you agree with that what, what are your thoughts there I, I think that if you're going into you know you're going to go in primarily into a dermatologic setting uh, that regardless of whether it's private practice or academics, you should really think largely about whether you want to do the medicine side of things. It's just a lot to dedicate. It's, uh, there's an extra year and uh, of work. And then the residency overall is actually much harder. It's much more rigorous to do medicine than it is to do dermatology. So you really, it's a big commitment uh, to make. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say it's the 
it's the practice setting, whether it's private or in, you know, in a in a group practice or in um, in academics is not how I would differentiate. The question is what you really see yourself doing on the uh, on the other end. And how I look at it, that there's so many people who are really good at med derm who didn't do medicine and dermatology yeah. that I think is not the only path forward. And given the the opportunity costs that are uh, it, embedded in it, um, you should really go to MedDerm if you have a distinct and independent love of medicine. So that's what I I, I did have and, and and do have still to this to this point. My career taking a little bit of a different direction, um, but I really like uh, look back very fondly at my internal medicine parts of my residency. I really really loved it. I was chief resident in medicine for uh, you know afterwards. This was really my 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 focus and goal in 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 doing it. So I never felt like oh my god now I have to go back to medicine. Why am I wasting my time doing this? Why am I in this? Like that wasn't my my sense when I was there. It would be devastating if that was. It would be a very long road to uh, to go down. Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the feedback I've heard from other physicians who are board certified in both internal and dermatology is essentially they're like, I just loved internal medicine and I couldn't get away from it. And And these are people who did kind of that old training path that you talked about of both an internal medicine residency and a dermatology residency. So... Um, I also wanted to ask while we have you here a little bit about the Harvard Dermatology Program. Dr. Liu, I know you're not here or at Harvard Dermatology anymore, but mm -hmm. now she can speak <laughs> honestly about it. This is it. <laughs> the chains have been removed. Was no, <laughs> right, yeah. so that after the rose? What's it called? After the, uh, oh, you know, like that? <laughs> the bachelor? Arash is the only one of us who watches The Bachelor. So that's <laughs> telling you something there. After the rose. <laughs> Um, but but yeah, we want to hear a little bit about Harvard uh, me, uh, Medical Dermatology Program. I'm a little um, confused on exactly what it's called. Dr. Liu, you mentioned it's the Combined... Yeah, the Harvard, Harvard Combined Dermatology Program. Yeah. Okay, what does that mean? I think the combined part refers to the fact that we have multiple hospitals. You know, a, a lot of times other residency programs are like there's one... Um, university or hospital affiliation, and then there is a program affiliated with that hospital. But for us, we have like a whole bunch. We have Brigham and Women's, we have Beth Israel, we have MGH, we have Boston Children's, we have the VA, we have Leahy. So, um, you know, on our like emblem, it's like running down the sleeve, right? There's all these like shields <laughs> and emblems. Um, so that's you why- You have to wear at least a medium to large jacket to be able to be part of our program to fit the emblem on your body. Yeah. So that's the combined part. And I think that's actually one of the things I love the most about it. Um, I loved that there was a lot of variety, variety, both in terms of the number of clinics. Like, I think you can think about any, just like close your eyes and think about any specialty clinic you wanted to rotate through. And I, I'm pretty confident that Harvard has it. And people who are like leading experts in those, you know, subspecialties they're practicing and they're teaching residents. And I like that it was all in different settings. I think maybe some people would see that, could see that as a drawback, like having to commute and drive from hospital to hospital. But I actually really loved that it was always a little bit different and it's interesting um, to see different types of patients and see different ways that people practice. And then on the flip side, when I became faculty, it was so great to have residents be like, um, like little bees cross-pollinating, right? Because there's so many ways to do the same thing. And then the residents would come back to me and be like, oh, well, I saw at MGH, they were doing, they were treating this with this. And I'm like, hmm, I never thought about that, but like, why don't I try that? So I think it's just this like endless buffet of options to pick for mentors, um, to pick for clinical interests. 
which is really one of the things I love the most about it. Did you ever feel like, um, what, one thing I've heard that people don't like about big programs mm -hmm. is they don't have the camaraderie that you might have at a smaller program, fewer faculty, fewer hospitals. Was that ever an issue? Or it, it sounds like you do kind of get some of that um, just by the nature of where you're at. Yeah, I mean, I think on the resident side, it is a big program. You know, um, I did my medical school at Yale, where I think each of the residency classes were about four residents. And we, on average, including our med derms, can be like 10, right, per class. And I personally love that. I just thought it was more like options to have friends, right? You could have more <laughs> friends. And, and in fact, even to this day, um, like there's five of us from residency that we still text each other, probably like sometimes even a hundred texts a day. It's probably maybe not natural or healthy to communicate that much. <laughs> that sounds like a, my personal hell. I'm going to go somewhere with four <laughs> residents. That, uh, that, that sounds about like right. A cult. No, but we, even to this day, bounce ideas off of each other. I mean, we know so much about each other's lives, personal lives, but then we also trade like professional tips. And it's, it's so we, I thought it was a really great way to be close knit with a large, a quote unquote, larger group of people. You know, 10 is not huge. Um, I think for the faculty, there's a lot of camaraderie. I mean, because we don't really interface or maybe Arash does, but I, because he's doing more inpatient and other things, but I feel like the Brigham was such a tight community for the faculty. So I got to feel very much entrenched as part of that. Um, but then it was still nice, like once a quarter to have these, what we call full education meetings, where we got to all be together in sort of a grand rounds format or talking about a certain subject where you get to see people like, Hey, oh my gosh, like haven't seen you in six months. Like what's going on. And so um, I, for me, it felt like the best of both worlds, but I do think that, you know, if people prefer to, to, to like know everybody, not just know everybody by name, but to really feel like you're getting that experience of working consistently with one faculty member, like over the course of three years, not just your continuity mentor per se, but like every single faculty, then it's not exactly that type of environment. Okay. No, that's good. And, and I think really what people care about is that they feel like it's a family and if you're yeah. texting you know your residents you're <laughs> on the road a hundred times a day like i'm really not even exaggerating i mean i'm not saying it's healthy but we, we definitely her, johnny none of them have received any of these texts in the last five years it's, 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 it's like a diary basically this this checks this text chain you know, it, it, uh, John, your question is basically, it's the fundamental question of any, should you go to a small college or a big college? Should you go to, is it better to live in a small town or a, or a big city? You, you, tr there is some level of impersonalization, but increased opportunity. And what happens in most of those areas is that you identify within the larger set, a close network of people that really you, you connect with and that, that works for you. Um, and I think the nice part, for example, is that like if you liked inpatient and you came to Harvard and you don't like me, you can't stand me. You can there's other people, right? There's Stephen Chen, there's Daniel Christianity, there's other people who you can connect mm -hmm. to um, and have that mentorship and 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 connection, and that's that's wonderful. So you can get not only these different um, mm -hmm. attitudes and ideas from different people, different perspectives, but just there's no gatekeepers because there's nobody that is there's no only one way of. Uh, of getting somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I think the the one type or the only type of person I would say that wouldn't be a good fit in this program would be if, if you require a lot of hands-on support for guidance, it mm -hmm. becomes difficult. So there's infinity resources, but you, and, and people will check in with you and meet with you, but it really requires somebody that has a level of self propulsion because it's, when you're in between all these institutions, it can be a little bit easier to, to, um, not be on the radar of any specific person at any right. time. 
so that that's something actually I think that we screen for when we try to recruit people, and is really what we um, the type of person that would benefit the most. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So as a follow up, I, I, when I think about residency applications, I think a lot about getting past those screens, right? Mm-hmm. Like the screen of a board score, the screen of your clinical grades, the mm-hmm. screen of how are your letters of rec and your um, your dean's letter and those sort of things. What are some things that Harvard screens for? What kind of applicant thrives or resident thrives at the combined Harvard Med Derm, uh, Derm program? Um, I think those are some questions that uh, that people would love to hear a little bit about Harvard. I think Chris, I can talk about the screening part first. So you can talk about the type of applicant, maybe. So, so I, I'm not on the uh, admissions committee, but I but I I know for a fact that we literally have no nothing that a hundred percent will screen you out there is no board score screen there's no school tier screen there's no grade screen there every single application is truly reviewed by usually more than one person uh and uh and, and it goes through that that process there is sort of a not a, a a system of scoring to standardize how we approach it because different faculty are reading each each one. They usually read it within a specific school, so all the ones from the specific school are uh, are read and looked at. But there is no like you have to hit X on step one or you have to do right. Y. It just really does not exist. Okay, so the idea of this concept of holistic review, which has been uh, brought in over time. Um, has uh, has really, I think, been something that was part of the way that Harvard evaluated people for years because there wasn't any specific thing. Now, that is a complete flex that we can do because we have a gazillion faculty. Okay. It takes so long to review these things, right? So if you're a program that has 10 faculty, right, or 12 faculty, which is a pretty medium-sized program, right? There's a lot of really small Durham programs. 12 faculty is pretty big. We have 50 faculty at Brigham. We have another mm-hmm. 50 at MGH. We have another 20 or you know 15 to 20 at, at BI, another 10 at Children's. So you're looking at 150 faculty. So we're doing, we're, we have 10x the number of, of uh, faculty, and we probably have maybe 1.2 times the number of, uh, of applicants because everybody mm-hmm. applies to just about every program, right? So it's not like we're getting that many more applicants right. or that differential application to anybody else. So we had the resources to do that. I think at smaller places, at places that are more limited in the number of people they have, you can't have somebody review 700 applications for 30 minutes each. You'd be like a full-time you know, position for four or five months. You just can't even do it in the time allotted to when you have to make your decision. Um, but for us, I think we've, we're, we're looking at it globally. And Chris can talk to you a little bit more about how we translate that into the type of person that we're, we're generally mm-hmm. looking for. Yeah, I, I really want to strongly emphasize that there really are no hard like cutoffs or criteria where we roll people out. So it's like a, a real life human is reading every single application, um, which I think means a lot. You know, we like going back to the holistic review part, which is like to do a holistic review truly, like purely, would be like one person who reads like every single application, right? Or a group of people who reads every single application. It's just not feasible. So I think we do the best that we can to um, incorporate the values of holistic review and how we look at um, applicants. I think it's hard to distill down to, um, I could talk about this for like 30 more minutes, but I'm trying to think of what are the, what are the critical things that, at least in my personal opinion, would be for someone who would really thrive there. Um, Arash touched on just a little bit. I think someone who's really a self-starter, because I think 
it's perfect for someone who who is excited by the prospect of endless opportunities and who's not intimidated by it. I think if it's someone who appreciates having more of a set path or a specific rubric in which to like go through the steps of residency or these are the things that you need to do or do this type of research, that person may feel a bit lost um, because I think you don't want to get lost in the shuffle with so many potential mentors and residents. I do think that um, the medicine is challenging. Like we have challenging rotations. There's a lot of inpatient consults, um, which you know, as someone who really didn't do any inpatient, now I'm appreciating so much, right? Like I really feel equipped from residency to tackle some of these really tough cases, even though that had not been my clinical interest before. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to like the foundation that you're setting up for yourself. You're setting that up for a lifetime of practice and how you can pivot within the field of dermatology really comes from what you've learned. And so I, looking back on residency, I'm so appreciative of all the skills that I gained because I think we were practicing like really good medicine, really challenging medicine. So I think someone who is clinically capable, we tried to look at that, but then also someone can do a self-assessment, right? Like, like, do I feel like that is something that interests me? Um, Cause I think someone who is excited by the idea of learning something new every day, I think will really thrive there. Um, and then I think the last part maybe is more flexibility. Cause I think there are like, the, the plus is having 150 faculty, which is amazing. But, and that's not a minus. It's more like the, the flip side to that is also it's 150 different people, right? Different personalities, different ways of practicing. And so, and then when you're a resident, you are limited by the people that you work with. It's not like you can show up and be like, oh, I'm going to prescribe spironolactone like this. You know, I'm going to check a potassium, even though Arash just did a paper saying you don't need to check potassium. Arash is like, that's not evidence-based. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you have to be able to, not work within the confines, but being able to understand that, like we all practice within the confines of our institution, the clinic, you know, the people we work with. So someone who has the flexibility to adapt to that within clinic to clinic and hospital to hospital. So I yeah. guess self-starter, flexibility, and someone who's up for a challenge. So, so one of the struggles I find is trying to portray those qualities in an application. Mm. Do you have any tips there? You know, it's it's easier to show than it is to tell, right? Mm-hmm. So you so if you have a, a distinct passion for something and that you've dedicated yourself towards learning about it, towards doing it, to being a part of a of a of a community or organization or interest and in furthering something, right? So if you think about the people, like there may be some person that spends all their time working in the community, somebody that spends most of their time working in the lab, right? There's all these people have nothing in common, right? But they would both be great residents. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that can you basically have a, a vision of the world in which that, that you want to see and be able to mobilize resources and take advantage of opportunities to try to create that that vision and execute on that vision. And that could be anything ranging from I'm I'm really interested in, in uh, you know teaching these kids in this area to I'm really interested in international work to I'm really passionate about understanding the pathophysiology of you know the way sun interacts with the skin or or, or whatever it is, and the better your connections to faculty, the better your sort of self awareness and understanding of yourself, um, the better you're able to describe and articulate these things, the better you are at showing people what your experiences are and what you've done. So for example, when I have a student that works for me for a year, I really get to know them. I know them well. I know how he or she thinks and what their attitudes and concerns and, you know, 
joy is always type of thing. And I really try to make a letter of recommendation that aligns with the way that that person is. If you know, if Johnny, if I'm writing a letter for you and you say, Hey, I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I really am. I'm good. You should take me. It, it things that still feel really self, um, almost like like brag, like bragging or self, yeah. self-aggrandizing to totally. say yourself, um, have a lot more weight when they come from from somebody yeah. else, especially when that person really knows you, connects with you, and really understands you. So that the really having those relationships with faculty, relationships with other folks, is really a a, a strong benefit. Dr. Liu, do you have any anything else you'd like to add? I, I wanted to shift focuses and talk a little bit about your career as a cosmetic dermatologist, but do you have anything to add to what Dr. Mastagini said? No, I mean, I think that um, I think that you know, like excellent applications can come in all flavors, and so it's it's like not necessary, and nor is it good to try to fit yourself into what you think the mold is, you know, because I think that, that there are people who are ex- who have excellent range, right, who are like amazing generalists who have done like something in every single bucket. And I think that demonstrates their ability to maybe like manage their time and to be um, efficient and have a wide variety of interests. But then we also get amazing applicants who have a lot of focus in one area who by default of like having dedicated the majority of their time in this particular project or in this particular arena may not have had time to like then be this generalist and do all those other things. And so I think both are very competitive and very attractive. Um, and I think just knowing what's what feels good to you, right? Um, and I think it's really hard and it's easy for us to say now that we're on the flip side of it to be like, be yourself. Well, well Arash loves to say, be yourself unless you're weird, then don't be yourself. Yeah, be somebody else for <laughs> half somebody an hour else. again, be you. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that a big part of the idea of being yourself is to better understand, like, is that residency going to accept me as myself, right? And that's maybe not even something you can really vocalize, unfortunately, because there's so many, we are just just trying to get past the gatekeepers. But I do think that, like, if you have a particular interest and you feel like the program does not support that, then you have to make some internal calculations about whether it's the place for you, even if it's has a great name or a great reputation or is in your hometown, right? So there's, there's just many, many considerations. Um, so, so before we go on, I want to make sure we've gone about an hour. Do, do y'all have time a little bit longer? If you guys got to go, that's, that's, that's great. We can, uh, I have a few more minutes, John, mm-hmm. John, we can do it. Okay. Same here. Chris is used to this. This, this is the never ending podcast. <laughs> really are. I just have like a tail see. end two hours blocked after every <laughs> podcast, just in case. It's, <laughs> it's like the, uh, it's, it's, uh, we should, it's like Lord of the Rings, but podcast, uh, form. Oh, it's like the coda, of, right? It like yeah. fades out for the second. <laughs> um, yeah, Johnny, go ahead. Yeah, well, I just want to say the Lord of the Rings is the OG of of prolonging, but then their sequel, The Hobbit, was even worse. So, yeah, <laughs> The Hobbit was a money grab. That's the problem with yeah. the with with, yeah. with the Hobbit. I just I just read. I'm just reading the Lord of yeah. the Rings series now, and I'm halfway through the last one, The Return of the King. But I, but it's a it's a lovely universe. I'm gonna get all this like geek uh, hate mail for this. But I but it's um. It's like the dude gets paid by the word. Sometimes I don't. I don't understand. Uh, Tolkien. <laughs> Tolkien uh, could have. Could have. Could have had a good editor. I don't know if they had that in the 30s, but it would have. Wouldn't have been not, not a bad idea. Yeah, it definitely wouldn't have been accepted in Jad. Yeah. But... <laughs> <laughs> so we'd love to hear Dr. Liu about your interest in cosmetic dermatology. That's mm-hmm. a that's a focus in your practice. Can you? Um, I guess. We can just hop in. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in cosmetic dermatology? But I also just want to say at the beginning, sometimes you hear this trope parroted online that if you're interested in cosmetic dermatology, 
you shouldn't really tell anybody, especially mm-hmm. as an applicant. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in cosmetic dermatology mm-hmm. as well as what you think about these kind of ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think that there probably is some truth to the trope, um, and I can kind of circle back to that. Um, my interest really started, I think, I think so much of how our ultimate practice shapes up to be is like the seeds that are planted during our training. And I just happened to have this amazing mentor who was my continuity attending, who had this wonderful practice that I wanted to emulate. She did exactly, is basically said that my practice did exactly like hers. Um, and I just, I think I like the idea of being able to provide a comprehensive array of services that my patients needed. Like I can come, they come in for their skin cancer screening, but then they also wanted to look better and feel better. So I can do their Botox and their filler at the same time or do their laser at a different time. And so, um, it was something that I think really required a lot of proactive seeking out. And actually, I think the Harvard program is like really strong in that. And we've made a lot of changes in the last few years, including incorporating um, continuity clinics that are surgical, that are cosmetics, um, like totally focused on that. Um, But I think that a big part of it was taking the initiative to find people who wanted to train residents in cosmetics, which is kind of a different beast, right? I don't know what it is about the fact that it's fee for service rather than like, you know, you're removing a skin cancer. It's like critical to the patient's health. And somehow I think patients who are used to going to academic hospitals are like readily accept that, right? Like often my patients coming into my former continuity clinic, they'll, they'll be like, oh, where is so-and-so? Like, I was expecting to see her today. I'm like, oh, she's on vacation. You know, they have that attitude. But I think there's something a little bit different when patients are coming in for something like, quote, elective, they're paying cash. And then you have to supervise that person, um, like a trainee, to achieve the same standards that the patient is expecting. Um, so I think that that's a really that's, that's quite a balance and it takes a special kind of teacher. And I think we were, I was really lucky that I had those teachers at Harvard who are like truly world-class cosmetic dermatologists who are still willing to give me a shot. So that's kind of how I set it up. And, and then a lot of it is really learning on the go, right? You learn so much. I think Arash told me before I went out and practiced, he was like, oh, that first year of being an attending, you're going to learn so much more than you'd ever did in residency. And he wasn't lying. You know, a lot of it is like that very first time. I remember the very first time I did a chemical peel. So straightforward on a patient of mine, nobody else was in the room. My hands were like shaking, right? Just, just, just absolutely <laughs> shaking. And that, that's normal. Every time you do something new and I love to keep pushing myself to learn new things and do something new, um, that sense of, um, nervousness, but it's the same type of exhilaration that I think keeps me wanting to go back for more. It's like a little bit addictive. Um, but going back to the second part of your question about whether one should hide an interest in cosmetic dermatology. And I'd be actually interested to hear Arash's thoughts on this too. But I do think, I think that trope probably comes from the idea that, well, a couple of things, you know, I think resident residency programs want to recruit and ultimately get well-rounded residents who are interested in all aspects of, of the training. And I think it maybe it is a little bit unfair, right? If someone came in and was like, I'm super passionate about room derm, I don't think everyone's like, oh, there's something like wrong with that person, right? Or there's, it feels a little bit different than someone saying, I'm super passionate about lasers. So, and I think probably that comes from the fact that by default of the institution having a residency program, it's affiliated, it's it's an academic institution with an academic agenda and a mission. Um, So maybe it doesn't feel like it aligns as well with that academic mission. But I personally think on the flip side is like, 
there are so many incredible cosmetic dermatologists who are advancing our field, right? Like the obvious, inventing new lasers, finding new ways to understand or enhance anatomy, finding like pushing the boundaries of what is achievable in terms of cosmetics as a, as a dermatologist and like almost blurring the lines between cosmetic surgery and plastic surgery. It's just really cool. So my personal thought is like, as long as you are going into it with the intention of being best at something, like really being good at that, I think it's okay to be genuine about your interests. Um, and if you don't feel quite comfortable, which I still totally understand, right? You're going into this interview. You do feel like you need to say the things that fit the program. At the very least, your homework internally. And I think people that are good to talk to are current residents or even better, like recently graduated residents to really get an idea, right? Like, does this program have a cosmetic clinic that's for residents? Do you guys get a supply? How flexible are people with you um, in terms of practicing either that's like set up within the program or like within the didactis, didactics or off hours? So it's kind of a fine balance, right? You're, you're going into this very, very stressful match process with so many unknowns. You always feel like you're going to say something wrong. It's going to put people off, but you really need to be gathering data because you don't want to end up at a place where your true interest is like to learn how to do lasers and there's nobody who's willing to teach you, or there's not even lasers there. So that's kind of, that's my thought. I don't know. What do you think, Arash? Yeah, no, I think that's a, there's a lot of uh, excellent points. It's complicated, right? So I, I agree with Chris fundamentally that, uh, basic cosmetics, right? There's there's like a long tail of cosmetics. There's lots of like very you know specific things that you can do, but Botox, you know, uh, uh, basic fillers should be the part of the part of the arsenal of every uh, mm -hmm. dermatologist. And if I went into a private practice where I was seeing a more general population, um, I would certainly uh, brush up on those skills because I feel it's it's basically part of what you need. It's like doing. I think like an excision should be part of like yeah. everybody should be able to do an excision. Uh, like these are basic types. Of things. Now you don't need to be able to do like some, you know, forehead flap, right? But you need to be able to do basic excision, basic Botox, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, basic lasers, that sort of stuff I think is, 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 is normal and should be appreciated. And it's actually part of every residency program. Like they, 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 they teach it. My, my view of why, why applicants get that, advice that they shouldn't keep they, should, they shouldn't be up and forward about it which um i think sadly i agree with chris is probably accurate is that i feel there's something intrinsic and in, i think it's intrinsic in humans but it's certainly intrinsic in medicine where everybody always wants to look at somebody that has it in their perception a little bit easier where they work a little bit less and make a little bit more money and they want to denigrate those people right so what we should really think about is why is it that dermatologists have such poor standing in the house of medicine, right? Mm -hmm. People always make fun of us, right? <laughs> they make fun of our hours. They make fun, even as they themselves hate their jobs, are leaving in droves and have low side, like as though they're like, you know, they're, they're, they're miserable, right? And anytime they have an issue, they desperately need our help, right? But I think there's an intrinsic whether it's a jealousy, whether it's a guilt, whether it's just uh, uh, being upset of, at uh, the lower number of hours and the higher relative compensation exactly. that dermatologists make, it's, it's frustrating for them, right? General dermatologists have a little bit of that when they get to most surgeons, right? And that's another right. thing that people often don't, we don't want to come and be highly, highly surgical in your things because we always say, oh, this person's coming in for the money. They don't really care. They don't do whatever. Right. My most surgeon is like my best friend. She's saved my ass so many times and helped so many of my patients do all these amazing things yeah. that I need her to do. And I, I, I don't know what I would do without her. Um, 
And I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled that she's uh, actually, it's, it's uh, for those listeners of our podcast, uh, Abby Waldman is one who I send uh, a lot of my, my patients to. She's absolutely wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then everybody then can look at the cosmetics folks who generally would like, remember the most outward going because in cosmetics, you are, you have to sell, like it's a, it's a cash-based mm-hmm. thing. You have to be out there. And, and people are thinking about the person on social media who's recruiting their patients, the person mm-hmm. who is aggressively on the on the news, on TV, on TikTok, and on TikTok, and it's some combination of, I believe it's some combination of of jealousy and like there's some intrinsic nervousness that you yourself are like a little bit cash based, or your your own job doesn't matter so much sometimes, and then mm-hmm. you you look to somebody who you think their job matters a little bit less, and their conversation is a little bit more unwieldy, and you you project onto them. I think that's that that is is really what it um, what it is because it doesn't make any sense for any part of medicine to do that to any other part of medicine uh, in my in my opinion, and um, uh, as long as you're practicing good ethical you know uh, uh, medicine that's, that's helping other people, and uh, but but it exists even you know certainly between our specialty and others and also within our own specialty as well. It's actually the same thing. I'll say this. I'll 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 say the quiet part out loud for listeners. The same way that we react so viscerally when we look at when private practice looks at private equity groups, it's because they do kind of the same things. They have the same tricks, and then when you push it a little bit further, a little bit more financially based, I think they project a little bit of their own the challenges or nervousness or frustrations on that. Because mm-hmm. for the amount of oxygen that that sucks up, the, the 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 potential negativity there, the challenges of it, the playbook is really just taken from most private practices is usually about the same and can be employed in an ethical manner but you know in both private practice and in private equity there is tremendous potential for the business uh, uh, outputs to overwhelm the medical outputs if you're not behaving in an ethical manner so bottom line is that you should keep it close to the vest you should learn it you should keep it close to the vest you should find people that that you trust to talk to to do it you're probably not best served by having that to be your primary avocation or interest wear it on your sleeve as you certainly as you enter dermatology residency. Gotcha. That's good advice because it, you're talking about like an ideal society. It wouldn't matter, but we're not in an ideal place where you can tell everybody your true interest. Keep it close to the vest. But then I wonder if when you do, when if somebody asks you, you know, you want to still be authentic, but maybe work to show why it's important to you in a positive way. So, so we had, um, Luke Johnson, Dr. Luke Johnson, Dr. Michelle Tarbox on the mm-hmm. show. I don't want to, we, I don't want uh, the, the second best podcast in, uh, in dermatology. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I know those guys. I'm an avid listener of their podcast. This is such <laughs> but, uh, good, you know, information CME, but yes, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so Dr. Tarbox, um, has an interest in cosmetic dermatology, mm-hmm. um, but she also has a, an intense interest in they have a free dermatology clinic there in, in Lubbock. And um, you can tell her passion for both. And I, I talked to another dermatologist who talked about how they use their, you know, some of their revenue from the cosmetic side to supplement and to make them able to see more Medicaid patients that they might not be able to see otherwise. And so I wonder if it does get brought up, you talk about some of those sort of things to, to mm-hmm. help people to see a positive side of that if that's truly why you're doing I think you could I think you could do that but in reality I know cosmetic surgeons that 
just all they want to do is cosmetic surgery and yes. they do an amazing job. And I send them all my patients because my patients love them and pay a lot of money and improve their <laughs> lives tremendously yeah. for that. Right. Yeah. So I don't think you need, so those are all wonderful things and I have complete uh, support for anybody that does that, but you can be genuinely and authentically just, this is what I love. This is what yeah, I'm interested yeah. in. This is how I, how I do it. And, uh, and, and that, that, that should be okay. What my, what I would say that if you're in an interview setting where somebody asks you, you can be like, I'm interested in, all parts of dermatology. I'm interested in general dermatology. I'm interested in, in surgical dermatology. I, I'm interested in cosmetic dermatology. I really haven't been exposed to all these areas in, in, in a complete way. I look forward to exploring them as a resident and getting best as good at everything as yeah. I can be. Then you just leave it at that. Yeah. You don't, there's no reason to go, you know, be like I'm intensely hardcore in one thing or another. There's just, there's no reason to necessarily articulate it in that, in that way. Gotcha. Honestly, right? Let's think about this. Like we talk a lot about, like we've tried to do what you're, you're, you're describing, which is to find some other validation for cosmetic dermatology. But the, um, and we're like, oh, if somebody has lupus, we can fill their, you know, they have scleroderma, we can fill their, their you know, uh, we can use filler for that thing. If anybody doesn't look, right, the way that they want or doesn't, they, they aren't able to express themselves physically the way that they want, right? It's a limitation of their lives that if they then choose, why, how paternalistic are we? If they choose, we, you know, we don't get upset if somebody wear makeup, right? If they choose to, to behave and act and or the way they dress, right? The way they're just all about self-expression. So mm -hmm. if they choose to do those things um, and, and, and do that, our, our job as dermatologists should be to do it as safely as possible mm -hmm. and to distinguish ourselves from other people who are just there to make a buck. I used to send all my cosmetic patients to Chris, all of whom are now upset because their dermatologist has now left. <laughs> but what I loved about Chris is sometimes I would send them for a reason, be like, hey, this is a patient I'm sending you for for this. This is their concern. And sometimes Chris would be like, well, no, I, I'm, you're not going to get, it's not worth your time or money to do that, right? Sometimes the patient comes with one concern. They're like, you know, I could treat this, but there's actually the, what you really want to look better is this other thing. Let's try this first. And it was really an ethical and thoughtful way of doing it. She could just do whatever I told her to do and 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 take the money and go off with it, but that's not what I was <laughs> going for. There's a there's an expertise. There's a and and part of the reason that Chris was getting at the difference is not only between the technical skill of the trainee and the and the physician, the attending physician, but there's an artistry, right? You want to go mm -hmm. to somebody that whose aesthetic matches what you what you're looking for, right? So like if you look at those like some people and let's say a lot, it's a, you know. Uh, a generalization, Los Angeles or Miami, mm -hmm. those patients are going for a a look that is not the look that a lot of other places are going for, but there's somebody that is genuinely trying to, you know, have that aesthetic. That's where you look, that's where you go. So there's a lot to, to a lot of different parts when I answer there, but I wouldn't worry about this too much. If you love cosmetics and you should pursue it, you may want to be a little bit more calm about it during your interviews. Gotcha. No, thanks for the honest conversation. That's Really what I've appreciated about the topical podcast, and I hope we can bring here is, is just the honest conversation of mm -hmm. this is the reality and, um, and, and this is what's perceived. So, so thank you. Um, we just want to wrap up with some, see if you guys have any last words of advice for dermatology applicants in general. We, we've put a lot of nuggets in here. Do you have any last words of wisdom or, or uh, parting words? I have a question for you, Johnny. Your, your name, Johnny oh. Hatch. It sounds like a superhero name. Is that really your name, or is that something <laughs> like that a you? Rock star uh, name. Yeah, it's like what? Is, is it a pseudonym? I'm just trying to understand. Alter ego, yeah. Your alter ego. I can't tell you my real name. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, it's Jonathan. Jonathan Hatch. But uh, um, I've gone by Johnny for a long time. And uh, going to, when I started medical school, my dad said, "Now, do you want to keep the name Johnny, or do you want to be more professional and use the name Jonathan?" And, 
one time I met this guy and he was the most classy man I've ever met. And he went by Johnny. That was his name. And I thought, you know, I'm going to keep Johnny. I like it. But yeah. So that's, it's my real name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it suits you. It suits you, Johnny. Yeah, um, I think in terms of, of, of your listener, I, I appreciate that you guys are doing this, this podcast. I think anything that uh, creates safe spaces where you can hopefully in an educational and entertaining manner, um, talk about real issues that people are experiencing. Um, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And uh, uh, it's a, we need more forum. We're a small field. We don't, we're a really small field dermatology. So we need uh, more forums like this in order to, uh, to do that. And good luck with your podcast. I, I look mm-hmm. forward to uh, seeing what you guys do. No, thanks. Appreciate it. Anything from you, Dr. Liu? You know, I'm just looking back on the process of applying. And actually, just right before this podcast, I met with my med student that I mentored this past year. And, um, and, and then we ended up having to do this mentorship from afar after I moved. Um, it's just, it's such a complex process and can be very anxiety provoking, but anything that demystifies it, whether it's a one-on-one conversation or a, like, what feels like an intimate conversation, but this eventually broadcast to many people. Um, really, I think just any little bit helps. Um, and we always say this, like it gets more and more competitive every year. Like Arash and I going back to, I mean, Arash going back many years, cause he's no, just kidding, um, <laughs> to our application process. Like, would we still get in? Um, but I think our, the applicants are also, it's like, it's not just that the process is getting harder but the applicants are also adapting, right? Like everything is shifting. So it doesn't mean that like every year you have to scale a a higher wall, but you have more tools in your toolbox. So don't be afraid. Um, It's just the beginning because I think about like our careers now and what an amazing, I say all the time, I can't believe this is my job. I get paid to do something I love. I love waking up every day, going to work. Like I'm like that ridiculously happy person at work, truly. And I get to come home and have like such a robust life outside of work. It's it's incredibly gratifying. So lots of things to look forward to. It's just a small hurdle, a big hurdle, but in the relativity of your whole lives or your whole careers, a small hurdle. And um, and uh, yeah, and we're here to help you if you guys have any questions. One One of my favorite things about this podcast is that I get to have these intimate conversations and and I, I, I feel really fortunate to have that opportunity to speak with both of you. And um, I hope that if you're a medical student listening, that you have the opportunity to find a mentor like Dr. Mastagimi, Dr. Liu, um, because they can really give feedback that, that we can't give on, on, a, on a broad scale like this in a podcast setting that's specific to you in your, in your circumstance. So anyway, thanks again for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It's, it's been a, it's been really fun for me. So thank you. Same for us. Johnny. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Diga podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to dermintrustpod at gmail.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 